welcome to Coming In Without Context. My name is Hope Stolstammer, and today I'm joined by Dylan Yang. Our guest is Mary Ritter. She'll be coming in without context. Um, and today's topic is what should be humanity's goal? Ooh, like overall goal? Like everyone working towards it goal? Yeah. And I mean, we can go a little more in depth about topics surrounding that. But for now, let's keep it as overall goal. Do you have any initial thoughts? All right. So I'm probably the worst person you could be asking this because I take philosophy. And <laughs> I used to have more of a bleak outlook on humanity than I do now. Like, I think I used to be sort of a nihilist when I was an edgy high schooler. Um, yeah, back two years ago. Yeah. So <laughs> long ago. That's basically like one tenth of my life hope. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyways, so I believed at the time that life was kind of pointless. Which Spicy sounds, take. <laughs> it sounds depressing, but no, no. I meant it like life is pointless on its own, but that's why you have to give life your own meaning. That's why you should always pursue what you want to do because like, why, why would you waste your life doing anything else? Like, it's great. Like, I, I really admire people who devote their lives to helping others. I think that's a great goal for, for life in general. But then there are people who are like, oh, I want to make a lot of money. I want to pursue a very coveted career. I want to leave um, an extensive legacy behind me. And I get that because I kind of want to leave a legacy too. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, if we're all going to end up in the same place, you know, why would you do something that you don't 100% believe in yourself, right? Like if you don't enjoy what you're doing, what's the point overall, right? Mm-hmm. So then if you apply that to, on a larger scope for like humanity, if we're all just kind of living in one long cycle where thousands of us die each day, but thousands more are born, it, is, it kind of makes the question almost unanswerable because there's no ultimate goal, right? So you think there shouldn't even be a single goal. There shouldn't be like a a goal that humanity should be reaching. I think there are sort of what I want to call medium long-term goals that humanity could work together to pursue. Like a lot of the common ones today would be probably climate change, right? Solving climate change, Mm -hmm. space exploration, being able to colonize and settle on other planets besides Earth, right? I disagree with that one. You disagree with that one? All right. why, Why do you disagree? I hate space. I hate feet. I hate space. You hate I don't know what you want from me. You hate okay. So you hate feet and you mm-hmm. hate outer space. Yeah, you want to learn more about things I hate? I have a whole list. Um, let's save that for another episode. <laughs> yeah. Why do you hate outer space hope? Because it seems like it's an like a cop out. Like, instead of fixing the planet, you're like, oh, let's just leave. And there's, like, so many things we haven't explored on the planet. Like, I think the thing most people cite is the ocean. Like, there's so much of the ocean we just don't know about. And instead, we're spending all this money and time trying to explore space. But, like, shouldn't we figure out our own planet first? I don't know. That's just my own topic. And it's become a playground for rich people to, like, do that. Like, I don't know. I get it. but. I feel like they're not mutually exclusive. I don't think you need to have one or the other. I think they can both coexist. And we definitely have the resources to pursue both of them at once. Yeah, I feel that. But as we come closer to a reality where 
the climate is going to destroy our own planet that we're on. If so much of our focus is devoted to exploring other ones, I feel like people are just gonna be like up and leave. Like, I mean, all those movies are about that, right? Like mm-hmm. when people colonize other planets, it's because we destroyed the earth. So then we go somewhere else. Right. Um, and it they're not wrong. <laughs> so would you say that humanity's closest goal should be to fix earth or like preserve earth and stabilize it before we continue exploring outer space yes i i personally believe that we should fix climate change and any problems we have on this planet before we start going and exploring other planets before climate change i feel like there is almost smaller goals that need to be achieved like trying to end world hunger and like trying to stabilize different countries but i think that should be done in conjunction with climate change because as the climate change like worsens then like that's just going to lead to further like instability around the world. So I mean like I yeah, climate change is probably the thing that needs to be tackled. Well, besides climate change and ending world hunger, I feel like other nearer goals we could achieve collectively uh would include like maybe curing cancer. Like that seems to be a goal that all of humanity should be working together towards, right? Mhm. So returning to like your original question, when you say that what's the next goal for humanity, it kind of implies that it's all of humanity coming together, working on it, right? And so it has to transcend nationalities, ethnicities, borders, ideology, beliefs, right? It has to transcend all of that, something that collectively benefits all humans. Yeah, and that that raises the question like can we even create communities where everyone can belong and stay within this goal or does everyone even need to like be on board with the goal or is it something we can just move forward without everyone? Right. Like that's where I think climate change is the most obvious answer like most people would probably point to that first because there's all this rhetoric about it being something that's going to affect everybody, right? Especially people from perhaps third world countries more um more immediately than uh, more developed nations, right? Mm-hmm. But that makes me think about so like there's two main world organizations, right? From like from the remnants of the Cold War, right? We have NATO, or I guess we also have the UN. Is can you explain that difference to me? NATO and the UN? NATO is like the military organization, right? The defense. Yeah, it's Act. a military organization and it's only like the US and our allies in like Europe right. and Asia. And then the UN is a body that represents like I think every single country is a member of the UN. And so you have like within the UN things like the General Assembly where all Is North Korea part of the UN? I'm pretty sure it's in the General oh, Assembly. I see, I'm I see. I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm like eighty percent sure that it's in. The- mm-hmm. I was thinking about like if because you you said that do all countries need to be involved? And we're just defaulting to countries as the groups of people because that's like easy, right? That's easy to understand. Yeah, I originally said communities, but countries right. also. Apply. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I I guess groups of people and countries is just an easier way to kind of categorize even though countries are probably in the if you're if you're zooming in they're they're not the best way to to organize groups of people def certainly not yeah but, but on a global stage it's it's easier it's also just how all the cards have fallen <laughs> right 
Well, so speaking on that, um, you were saying, could we achieve goals for the benefit of humanity without everyone participating? I definitely think that's true. And it's kind of interesting that the reason that's true is because there's only a handful of nations which are like the top of the top in terms of global powers, right? Yeah. I mean, if you go and you look at the UN, which we were talking about before, there's only like five countries that actually have a say on the security council and that's a body that actually gets shit done Mm -hmm. um which means it doesn't get shit done (laughs) because it's like the u.s france england russia and china and then there's always like extra members but we don't care right because it's based on which nations have the capability and the resources to be able to actually affect change but then these are all countries with different ideologies and political goals. Yeah, and it's also based on the countries that had the resources to affect change at the end of World War II. So a lot of people say like England and France should not because they're like Germany has like a greater like economic capabilities than them. Germany's not on it. People talk about how Japan is more influential, but Japan's not on things like that. And there have been talks about like India, Brazil, like trying to get representation because that's obviously skewed because you think of it, the United States, England, France, Russia are all North American or European. And then you just have China is the only one that's representing literally any (laughs) non-white. The U.S. isn't. The U.S. is probably more diverse than like a France or UK or Russia, but it's still like mostly white. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't know if you could include Russia in like the West, but it's it's certainly not the East. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's like West Russia and then East Russia. Yeah. Because they consider but most themselves... of the people in Russia live in Europe. Mm-hmm. Right. I feel like uh, something we have haven't mentioned yet, which is again and again, is probably going to date this episode. Um, the pandemic, COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. like that's something that affected literally the entire world, right? But it didn't take a collective effort necessarily to s- slow it down. That's kind of, uh, I, I mean, it it does because like everyone has to do their part and stay indoors, right? Stay safe, but then. If you're thinking about like the vaccines that were created, they came from the US, they came from Europe. I think there's, I mean, there's currently developing one in Japan, I know, like, because they had some policies, uh, domestic policies with like, they, they don't accept outside vaccines, or at least they have to go through a lengthy process, right? I'm also 90% sure China had a vaccine. Right, right. But, but what I'm saying is like, Although it affected everybody, it wasn't like we all came together and held hands and shared research and stuff in order to fix it. And in fact, there was a lot of conflict and pointing fingers at each other, especially when it first started, right? Before I comment on that, Mary, do you have any thoughts? Wow, I I didn't know that I was going to be coming in uh, literally with no uh, or in the middle of the conversation. (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess that's the, the podcast title. I like um, that you were about to say coming in without content. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, I think I'm going to have to listen a little bit more. I'm not the kind of person to just like fully jump into a conversation only hearing like two sentences. So I think I'm going to listen a little bit more and then I'll give my thoughts. <laughs> That's a very calculated decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the most cautious guest yet. <laughs> okay. 
Oh, I was going to say, we still haven't conquered the pandemic. I know you were saying that um, it didn't take a collective effort to kind of get the vaccine and all that. But I think it because there was no collective effort on actually like abiding restrictions and like countries having uniform plans and like people actually following a lot of like guidance, it's still like pretty bad. Like the U.S. is sort of coming to normal. Right. Um, but like people are still dying here too. So I feel like the lack of collective action has allowed it to continue as long as it Well, not only that, but also the different paces of returning to normal in different countries. So for example, South Korea early on was really great in terms of contact tracing, in terms of shutting things down publicly so that people would not spread it to each other, right? Whereas at that time, still the US, we didn't even consider it a huge threat yet, right? So they had a they had an early lead in that sense. And also, if you think about New Zealand, they at one point, while the US was really in the thick of it, they had completely opened up and reopened all sporting arenas to full capacity, right? There were pictures of them going to like a rugby game, I believe, and it was like a full packed stadium. The prime minister was was there in attendance as well. Like, so they had basically solved it on their own by closing off their borders. But now if you look at them, where, where now the US has kind of returned, uh, starting to return to normal again, they have faced a new wave of infections, of spreading, and they have to go back into lockdown again. And so part of that is because they were allowing travel. They let people from other countries come in again because they felt like, oh, we've already solved this. We fixed it. But since all the other, the rest of the world was still struggling, coronavirus was able to get back in. And now they're, again, dealing with another wave, right? Mm -hmm. So it was almost like if you if you imagine it as like a metaphorical race where the goal is ending COVID or like returning to normal without restrictions, it's almost as if the nations that were leading and running and they crossed the finish line, but then other nations, other runners just drag them back behind. So they, they have to start over, start the race all over again. Interesting analogy, Dylan. I think <laughs> it's it's a I feel like it's a weird thing to say, like, I've heard this and I've talked about this with other people about how I've heard or other people have heard people saying that, oh, like the pandemic's over now that the pandemic's over or we fixed it. But like, what does that mean? When is the pandemic actually going to be over? Because I think we're all aware that like COVID is not going to disappear. And so it's hard to measure like when, when it's kind of over and when, we leave like this pandemic state, like, is it an individual thing? Like once you get your vaccine, you can be like, you know, I'm pretty, pretty safe now. Or is it a nationwide thing or a worldwide thing to declare? Or will there even be a declaration? Because I don't think that it just, it's an interesting thing. And the first time that we've had to figure that out and think about it, because I don't think it's necessarily like the end of restrictions, because we've seen throughout the whole pandemic, at least in the US, and other places where they loosen restrictions, they get rid of mass mandates. Um, but of course, the pandemic wasn't over, you know, last summer when things were opening back up again. And I, I wouldn't say that it's over now in the US, even though things are opening and mass mandates are gone. That's a really, really interesting point, actually. Because like, yeah, you're right. What does it mean for a pandemic to be over? Like, if you think about polio, 
there was a big historical moment when polio was finally eradicated for good, and no one had to deal with it because we had come up with the cure. And you're you're right in saying that there's probably not going to be something like that for COVID or for coronavirus, right? Because It'll still exist somewhere, and even if we are able to return to normal, it'll still be present, right? It's not going to be fully eradicated. We can prevent it, but it would still exist. And I'm wondering if how we use the word pandemic is so specific to certain diseases and viruses. Like we don't consider cancer to be a pandemic, right? Even though it's so widespread and. The human population across the world, but we don't consider it a pandemic because it's not spreadable, right? It's probably because of like, yeah, if it's contagious, it's more likely to be a pandemic. So it'll spread from person to person. And it's interesting that you brought up polio because I know there was like a moment where you know everyone was pretty much getting vaccinated against polio, and it seemed like not to be a threat. But I think in recent years there have been like cases, like probably under like five. Of people getting polio as people don't vaccinate their kids, and I don't quote me on that because I might just be remembering a completely different disease that we had eradicated that was coming back. But it's interesting that, like with coronavirus, like for polio, when the vaccine came out, like everyone was in line to get that. They're like, "Oh my god, my kid doesn't have a chance of getting this. This is wonderful," and pretty much everyone got the polio vaccine. But with the coronavirus, we've seen that. There's a lot of resistance to getting the vaccine and a lot of resistance to following mask mandates and stuff. I think that has to do with like a larger trend of mistrust towards governments and like science that I don't think was as prevalent when like polio was an issue. I feel like there's a lot greater comfort in that sort of success than there would be in a success against coronavirus. I don't know what you guys have to say about that. <laughs> I know there was.、Um, I've seen articles saying like, oh, there was also vaccine resistance like back in in the past before,、um, but it does seem、uh, like a new thing. And I don't know. It. I don't think that vaccine hesitancy is new, but it feels、um, like you were saying, hope that there is more of a mistrust in science than the government, and yeah, maybe less like collective, right?、Um, action because I think the thing with Coronavirus is that it varies so much. You could literally have you could be asymptomatic, or you could have a very mild case, or you could die,、um, or have serious effects. And so I think that that like some people are willing to to、um, gamble with that and say, oh well, I'm healthy, and so I'll probably be fine. And some people are willing to take the risk, and then a lot of other people aren't. Yeah, it's I I I'm hesitant to say that. It's a new thing because I feel like, like if you look at history, there's always people going, "Oh, this is a new wave. This is a new trend. This has never happened before." But then, if you look back, like a few decades, like or the, a few generations, it has happened before. You just weren't alive for it back then, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical in saying that the vaccine hesitancy is a completely new thing, but it's certainly a worse problem because of our. Globalization, our global communication, and the internet. Because if you think about back before immediate communication was possible, the at worst someone could write an op-ed in a newspaper about something they don't like, something they're skeptical about, and maybe that newspaper gets published locally, maybe it gets published nationally, but it's not globally. But now 
we have the technology for people to form groups online, private groups, and they can just create an echo chamber of mistrust of deceiving themselves or of like incorrect facts, right? And there's no way to prevent that because we value free speech as well. But it's certainly more convenient. It's more susceptible to spread almost like a disease, mistrust of medicine and of like news. Yeah. And my only comment is I don't know about vaccine hesitancy. And I, I'm sure it was also people were a lot of people were hesitant about vaccines back then. But when I was saying about like mistrusting government, we have polling for decades and the the distrust of government has just been getting larger and larger. Like the percent of Americans who actually trust the government shrinks each year. So that we we do have like the polling data for. And like when it comes to that, like how do you get anything done if no one trusts the people who are supposed to be leading them? Can you get anything done in that sort of instance? Well, I, I feel like it depends on the structure of the government, right? In a democracy, well, I guess specifically in our two-party democracy, if you trust one side and they're in power, then it's probably easier for you to uh, go along with whatever their policy is, whatever their plan is. But then there's going to be like a whole, almost half of the population that's not going to go along with it because they believe in the other party, right? And it almost sounds like a, a pro for like authoritarian governments because the citizens don't have a say in what happens. Like, obviously, it doesn't work out to be a good thing, but if the leader want something done and they want something to be a certain way, they can just decree it and the citizens will have to go along with it because the military is under their thumb and they don't have a choice. So I don't know. I, Mary, what do you think? About distrust of the government? Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like it's, yeah, I don't know how you, how you try to combat that. And especially with something related to this to a, a public health issue. I'm not sure how in a democracy, what the best way is to to convince people. I don't know. I mean, there have been successful public health campaigns in the past, um, like the public health campaign for not to go on too much of a tangent, like the public health campaign against smoking in the U.S. was pretty successful. But of course, smoking isn't uh, gone in the U.S. And it's also been replaced by vaping. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't really know what the answer is for when you have two sides with one side in office and trying to convince the other side to to um, listen to you and do what you have to say, especially, as I've said, in something that is a public health crisis. Another thing that I wanted to add just quickly is that particularly in the U.S., there's like a debate or I guess like an ideology about what size the government should be and how much say they should have in your in, in your personal life, right? Tied to the founding of American democracy is the question of should the government be really big? Should the federal government be really big and have say over all aspects of the country? Or should it be divided into a smaller government like local government, state government, right? And so if you give the government more power, or if they are trying to lead a campaign for a certain topic, there's going to be the distrust we were talking about, but there's going to be a feeling of 
infringement, a feeling of invasion that is probably unique to the fact that we have this question in our history and in our founding. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. But as it comes to like trying to, you know, solve collective problems like climate change, for example, you can't really leave that to like local offices, to statewide offices to solve because that's a global issue. And it's hard to even leave it just to individual countries to try and help fix like carbon emissions or water usage or anything that's really exaggerating the problem. Um, So even as like countries go together to sign compacts to like start initiatives to help solve climate change, when you leave it to individual governments, a lot of times it's it's hard to get anything done. And I couldn't imagine if like things were broken down even more. I know we were just talking about public health crises, but that's essentially the same thing. Like we, every country had their own say and that meant that lockdowns were at completely different paces, that places opened up and closed down in sort of disjointed manners. And we're still dealing with uh, coronavirus to this day. So I wonder if there's any way that like disagreement could be recognized and goals can be reached like without it always being so broken down and compartmentalized to the point where it's never solved because everyone's on different pages. This brings me back to something that Mary said that I really liked. She was talking about how the pandemic could be over for certain groups of people or certain countries. But then also there's a question of, when is the pandemic over for me, right? Like if you have an individualistic mentality and you get vaccinated, you could be like, oh, the pandemic's over for me and I don't have to worry about it anymore. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't matter what I, what actions I take because it, I'm safe. Right. But that's not true because you live in a community, you're part of both your local and your global community. And so your actions do have consequences which affect other people. And so tying it back to, your question, I feel like there's a huge obstacle, a mental block, um, like you were saying, where even if you talk about issues like climate change, where it does affect everybody, the problem there is that it's not visible. It's not immediately affecting everybody. For the people who live or who are well off, they can just say, oh, nothing's different. I'm still fine. It I feel the same. My life is the same. I don't even notice any difference year to year. So where is this issue you're you're pointing at? Where is this issue that we need to solve? Are you just making it up, right? And that's likely the mentality that a lot of people have. And and then you can expand that out to larger groups, to nations. And that's how we fail to come together to actually coordinate, cooperate, and actually address these issues. I guess I'm wondering what what the individual can do besides um, in this situation besides get vaccinated. And then kind of after you get vaccinated, it's like, what, what do you do? Because yeah, like you're safe, but like you were saying, Dylan, you still have, there is still um, the issue is still present and it's not solved. And so then it's the question is, well, what does the individual need to do um, and what can they do? Because I don't feel like I have a lot of power to affect the situation in countries that are thousands of miles away or even um, here in my own community or in the U.S. 
And so the question for me is like, well, what, what's my role now? Because before I was vaccinated, it was pretty simple. It was like, okay, you know, wear masks and um, socially distance and limit, like not hanging out with people and doing all of these different things. Um, but now that I'm vaccinated, I'm like, okay, what's my role now, especially because we're experiencing a lot more freedom um, in the U.S. with the end of different mandates. I feel like that's a question that people should always have, but no one ever thinks about because it's great that you're thinking about what you can do for others. Like, it's a question that you should be asking, even if there wasn't a pandemic going on, right? There are so many volunteer opportunities available to anybody to help out, help others, all you have to do is give some of your time and your effort, right? But if it's not emphasized to you, then you're never going to even realize that there's something you could be doing, right? So like you're asking, oh, is there something I can do now to help with the COVID vaccination relief effort, right? And there certainly are like more intensive volunteer opportunities, which you might need certain qualifications for, but then there's also things that are easier, like you could volunteer to direct at your local food bank or help um, at a homeless shelter or like all of those opportunities, which go completely forgotten during a non-state of emergency, right? I mean, even smaller things could be done. Like, I know this is, I, I've recently in my internship, have been it's been emphasized to me that I should contact Congress more, but most People in Congress, at the end of each week, they receive a report about any of their constituents, like who emailed them or called them or wrote to them. And basically their staffers keep tally marks of what they were contacted about. So if six people um, contacted them saying to build the border wall with Mexico, then they'll get that on their report that six people that, that are their constituents emailed them like say saying to build the border wall and so if you say things to congress like try and share the vaccines with other countries because we honestly have a surplus at this point people are it's the amount of vaccines that are being distributed to american citizens has been like plateauing and i don't know if it's even started declining and so like if you send just an email to congress to any of your congress people i mean it doesn't mean they'll actually do anything <laughs> but at least they'll see that that's what you want to do and if enough people who are constituents send emails I think the statistics like if as few as 10 people email them or call them in support of an issue they're more likely to vote in favor of it because so few people contact their congress members that seeing just seven people show support for something is an insane number of people to show support for any sort of issue. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how helpful that is because now I've been emailing every week all of my Congress members and I, I don't know what will come of that. Um, I certainly have. I share the distrust of government that most Americans seem to have, but technically they pay attention. <laughs> That's definitely a whole nother topic, but it's just so interesting that theoretically you vote for your representatives based on their political beliefs and their lean, right? Like if you look at their voting record, you can see, oh, I agree with this, I agree with this, I disagree with this. And then you can vote for the candidate that best represents your personal views, right? But then in practice, since they're not, like you said, they're not really getting that much interaction with their constituency on a personal, like sharing what 
you want done, then they are actually just voting for themselves, right? They just follow whatever they feel like best represents their group, but might not be accurate. But that's a completely different topic. I think in high school, my history teacher had specific terms for how um, Congress members could go about how they want to vote on certain issues. And like, I don't really remember what the terms were, but like one of the ones was like, they actually try and get a good, they pull their constituents and try to get a good like thumb on like what they think and vote based on that. And then there's others who care less about their what what their constituents think and they think what's good for their community is what they believe is good for their community so they'll even go against their constituents on certain issues if they feel like it'll be better and so those are like the two guiding things and there there was more detail and more reasoning about it um but it was like do you feel like your community would benefit most by someone who really represents them or do you feel like you can almost selfishly decide what's better for your community yeah, the second person doesn't sound like they're cooperating very much at all. I mean, I think the textbook phrased it more nicely. <laughs> well, I feel like the main lesson we should be taking away from this is that cooperation is the only way to solve bigger issues. Uh, Mary, what do you think the question was? Oh, boy. Um, I feel like it was maybe something about maybe like collective action and what and how that relates to COVID and maybe um, something like, uh, I don't know, what is the United States' role in, in um, helping other countries or something to that effect, probably more general than that. That is my guess. Um, so the question was, what should be humanity's goal? And we kind of avoided those terms, but uh, pretty related <laughs> to your guess. <laughs> We really got into that COVID thing when we brought it up. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't originally about COVID. It, it was not about COVID. We ended up talking a lot about climate change for a while, and then we just started getting into COVID when you joined, which I think extended it, because whatever topic you're on when the guest joins lasts a bit longer. Well, it was definitely an interesting conversation. All right, wrap us up, Hope. All right, <laughs> so that was the end of... Well, do we even wrap up typically? What am I doing? What do we normally do to wrap? Okay, that's the end. Bye. Bye. -bye. <laughs>